Uh, today is a very um, special day, special day, special day, special day. You know, there are some of my favorite episodes, uh, the book clubs, you know, uh, the film clubs. And today it's one of my friend, my, I call her Auntie, Auntie Adobe. And, you know, one of my favorite authors, you know, one of my favorite books. There's this, oh, the only book of literature that I, re that I decided to start rereading every year. There are quite some horror stories in this country. Yeah, yeah. We would hope that this is the worst, but it, it's not. Today, my guest is the multiple award-winning, best-selling author, Adaobi Mwaobani. And we're going to be talking about her two books. What is the book I'm looking for, really? <laughs> <laughs> her latest and harrowing book, Buried Beneath the Baobab Tree, I hope that's the pronunciation, American Library Association Best Fiction for Young Adult. Zainab and I sit up behind, beside her, gripping her shoulders and patting her head. This is not Islam, she says once. This is not Islam, she says again. Mm. This is not Islam, she says over and over again. And we're getting some of the people who love these two books, you know, writers and editors who see what makes this book special. People need to also pay attention to the fact that um, a way of fighting this whole Boko Haram menace again might not just be about might. To join me, Anna Dobi, on today's episode of Today's Book Club. So I want to start this one by reading. So there are these three, so I mean, have these three pages, pages 163 to 168. For me, I mean, take, many people will take different things from the book, but this I thought was almost the, the heart of the mm. storytelling. Aisha returns just before dawn with her hijab as cue. Mm. Zainab and I sit up behind, beside her, gripping her shoulders and patting her head. This is not Islam, she says once. This is not Islam, she says again. Mm. This is not Islam, she says over and over again. You know, I'm going to read some of that, but that's just one of a, of a, of a, of a series that just explores that. Mm. What is this thing that we are doing here? Um, I think that is, because I, I again, because I do, it's a blessing and a disadvantage that I know you. Because I know you are such a powerful Christian. <laughs> By path, I don't mean, I mean like you take your faith seriously. This, there was such an eloquent defense mm. of Islam as a faith that went through this book that I did not expect. Mm. Where did that come from? You know, it comes from that, again, wanting to tell an honest story. Mm. You know, just wanting to tell an honest story, irrespective yeah. of what I believe what I think. Mm. So the more I covered Boko Haram, spoke with former members, spoke with current members, you know, people mm. who were going through the radicalization, or people who were imprisoned or in mm. captivity, you know, people who had been arrested. Mm. And the more I spoke with people who worked with these people, the more I realized that it wasn't really not about Islam. Mm. Like when I spoke with Dr. Fatima Kilu, who's one of the leading uh, radicalization experts in Nigeria, she's worked with the Nigerian government to develop radicalization programs, right. worked with Boko Haram members, current and former. And she said she herself was a Muslim. When she spoke with a number of them, mm. they didn't even know anything about the Quran. Hmm. Yes, they didn't. Some of them didn't pray. You know, so you begin to wonder where exactly. So the, the mm. foundation of their act or of their um, uh, passion, what, mm. what do you call it, their mm -hmm. passion and mm. whatever it's called, 
was not their religion as such. Mm. So there were other things mm. fueling it, motivating them that were not the Quran. Right. And then I know we like to present it as a Christian, uh, uh, Boko Haram attacking Christians. Yes, it comes across as that. And on the surface, it looks like that. But when you go through, interview their victims, mm. go to communities where, that, that have been affected by Boko Haram, mm. they are kidnapping Muslims as well. Yes. They are raping Muslims. That's what the book exactly. Yes. So these are the things I discovered in the, in the process of interviewing Boko Haram victims and um, reporting from co communities that have been devastated by Boko Haram. So I couldn't help but tell what I had seen. Yes. So yes. never mind that I'm not, I'm not, uh, 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 you know, I wasn't advocating for, I wasn't, it, it wasn't a defense of Islam mm. as much as it, as it was a, uh, you know, a, 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 a telling of the truth. Yeah. yeah. I had to tell what I had seen. Yes. That for many of them, it had nothing to do with Islam. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so that's it. How have you been able to win their trust? The people whose stories you are telling? Mm. You know, I think, you know, People ask those kinds of questions, and I think the skill that comes with the skill of a journalist. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just about being able to write the stories. I think there mm -hmm. is a there is a silent skill where you're able to get people to talk to you. Mm -hmm. You're genuinely interested in their stories, and then somehow people are willing to talk to you, willing to ask the hard questions. Mm -hmm. So I think um, that's it. There must be some skill right, involved right. because I, I know I do get some stories. Yes. That, other people don't get. I mean, and I get asked some questions and I get. So I know there is that. But then I've been involved in these communities. I didn't just mm. um, interview people and disappear. Yes. I stayed yes. in touch with them. Yes. For example, I, in 2017, I interviewed a woman who um, was, she was kidnapped by Boko Haram, mm -hmm. fell in love with a Boko Haram commander husband, became mm. a member of Boko Haram, mm. was freed by the Nigerian, Nigerian military put through a whole year of de-radicalization, yeah. was free, released into the community. Four months later, returned to Boko Haram. Even yeah. while she was in the Sambisa, she was phoning me. And then three years later, she's reappeared, you know, run, fled Boko Haram again. So the point is, mm. this is somebody whose story I've covered from all angles mm. over four years. And mm. it wouldn't have happened if I didn't stay in touch with her, mm. if she didn't stay in touch with me. So it comes with um, forging relationships with these people. Again, you said winning their confidence, sometimes mm. solving their problems that are not mm. related to your yes. journalism. Yes. Because they do have problems, yes. things they want to talk about that are not related to the so story this, at that time. Yes. But they're calling you, you're tolerant, even when they call at a time, you'd rather not speak with people. And then you become the person they call when there's breaking news or something mm. that is newsworthy or something new happens. Oh, she's back. Oh, she's in love with the man, you know. Mm. So that's how it happens. Yeah. yeah. Staying in touch with them. Um, keeping those relationships alive yeah. and yeah, they trust you. It seemed to me that the more, the more you got into the Boko Haram stories, the more you realized the danger of centering Chibok. Mm, definitely. So what happened is at the beginning, like the rest of the world, I was captivated by Chibok. Yes. But then in the course of speaking with people, okay, the first, so Chibok happened in April, 2014. Mm -hmm. And then that, pushed forth the Nigerian government mm. to take action because the world, the, the gaze of the world was upon Nigeria and the Nigerian government. Mm. And everybody said, you have to do something to rescue the girls. You have to do something. So the Nigerian government sent the military. There was, you know, increased intense uh, bombardment, bombardment of Boko Haram mm. that led to the freeing of the first set of girl, what, what looked to us like the first set of captives. Mm. Now, when some of us started speaking with those people, we realized that many of them had been in captivity more than a year. 
before, before the Chibok girls were kidnapped. So the first set of people I interviewed were kidnapped a year before Chibok. But nobody knew of them. Nobody had heard of them. And these were people kidnapped at the age of 12. I mean, the first person I interviewed was kidnapped at 12. I think I interviewed when she was 14. Something like that. You know, those kind of mm. stories. Young girls who had been kidnapped and nobody knew about them. They'd been in the forest, married off, had children. And then Chibok happened and, you know, caught the world's attention. So that was the first shock I had. Mm. Wow. There have been people going through this thing long before the rest of us even had heard an idea. And then the government started working hard to re free many girls. Of course, again, with the um, activism of bring back our girls, mm -hmm. people saying these girls have to come. So the government was actually trying to find the Chibok girls. Right. And in the process was rescuing really Other. thousands of girls. Right. As of 2018, I think there were 30,000 girls, women and girls that were rescued or something like that, or 2017. And then I would hear people say things like, the Nigerian government is doing nothing. The government is doing nothing. Mm. We, have, we, 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 we still have 200 and something girls missing. And I thought, how mm. can you say the government is doing nothing? 30,000 girls and women are back. Mm. And you still feel it's nothing because the Chibok girls are not back. So I found that very offensive, especially because I was meeting these victims. Yes. Hearing their stories, seeing how their lives were devastated, mm. traveling to these communities that their lives had been turned upside down. Mm they would have to rebuild for decades. Seeing mm. families that were torn apart. Some families had no male left because all mm. the men were slaughtered. slaughtered. Yes. So some people, some women were struggling to, for the first time in their lives, begin to head lead home. Mm. So I saw things like that. And then mm. I'll hear the international media say things like, well, when I say, you know, a lot of um, outspoken international journalists, um, activists will mm. say things like the Nigerian government has done nothing mm. is doing nothing. Meanwhile, thousands of women and girls were mm. coming out of the forest yeah. almost monthly yeah. and I thought no, 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 no it's unfair, to, unfair. Just, the, to just focus on Chibok. The Chibok girls are important, symbolic of course, without them the world may not have, the, you know, the attention may not have been drawn, as much as attention that was drawn to the issue of girls and women mm -hmm. being victims of Boko Haram but then it was absolutely unfair. Yeah, yeah. You can listen to the full podcast on Apple Premium. Just search with Trudy.